Hello and welcome to Evangelion, interpreting scripture and life as we near the end of our investigation into the letter of Galatians. So we find ourselves in chapter 6, so let me set some context and then go into the material. Now as I've been suggesting throughout this investigation into Galatians, I understand there to be two central components to Paul's justification theology. They are life emerging from death and freedom emerging from slavery. In my doctoral research, I made a case that Paul's justification discourse actually gets its impetus from what we technically call the restoration eschatology of the biblical prophets. Now, don't let the big cumbersome words frighten you. This is merely a sort of highfalutin way of making what is actually a fairly simple point. Those prophets who described the political and religious conditions under which Israel's exile in Babylon would end and articulated her return to the Holy Lands to both rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, we're mainly talking about Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the last third of Isaiah, were taken up by Paul in his own thought. Now, as scholars such as Philip Alexander and Tom Wright have argued rather persuasively, for most Jews, the exile didn't truly come to an end with the people's geographical relocation to the Holy Lands. So even though the exile came to a physical end and the um, people of Israel were allowed to go back to Israel, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild their lives, the exile continued in their hearts and minds and in their continual subjugation under foreign powers, even relatively benevolent ones, and in the absence of the glorious future promised by the same prophets. From a narrative perspective then, the prophetic description of restoration was very much a story waiting for an ending. For Paul, the death and resurrection of Jesus was the climax of Israel's great story. This was the true end of the exile. The story would of course continue uh, with the formation of the early Jesus movement um, and perhaps the true complete end of everything would be when Christ himself returned. Now, in fact, I've argued further that Ezekiel's story of restoration and Paul's story of justification kind of act in parallel. In both stories, the people are in a state of death. This is signified by Ezekiel's dead bones in the dry valley in Ezekiel 37, and Paul's expression of Israel under the curse of the law and the Gentiles dead in their sins in Galatians. In both cases, God intervenes by means of his spirit. In Ezekiel's context, this is the spirit that brings these dead bones to life and gives them muscles and ligaments and sinews and skin. And in Paul's context, it's the spirit who enters into our hearts, causing us to cry, Abba, Father, Galatians 4 verse 6. In both cases, the spirit is a life-giving spirit. This is seen in Ezekiel when the dead bones rise to their feet and stand as a mighty army. And in Paul, it's by Israel suffering crucifixion with Christ and experiencing death to the law and life to God. That's Galatians 2.19. And the Gentiles having their flesh crucified with all of its passions and lusts and being made alive by the Spirit so they can keep in step with the Spirit. That's Galatians 5.24-25. In both cases, a new community is birthed. In, in uh, Ezekiel's context, it's this reconstituted Israel, 
now rebuilding the temple under the direction and guidance of Ezra and Nehemiah. And for Paul, it's this multi-ethnic Jewish and Gentile end-time people of God, the, the new ecclesia, the new assembly, the church, the people of God. And the final part of the prophecy is uh, Ezekiel depicting the spirit entering the hearts of the people so that they engage with God's law in an unprecedented and new way where God's law will almost become part of the identity of his people. And Paul sees this coming to fulfillment as the spirit becomes the new moral conductor of the Galatian Jesus communities. And indeed, that's the position that we find at the end of chapter five. We now have a people who are not under law and are so led by the Spirit. This is a multi-ethnic people, Jewish believers who've died to the law in order that they might live to God, Gentile believers who've crucified the flesh with all of its passions and lusts and now live by the Spirit and therefore keep in step with the Spirit morally. Now, there are two very important conclusions drawn in chapter 5 um, on this basis. The first of them is in chapter 5 verse 6 where Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything only faith working through love and as I argued in the previous podcast I see that as lo the love of Christ. The second conclusion is in verse 14 where Paul writes that to be enslaved to one another in the context of love or to serve one another in love as some translations say corresponds to loving one's neighbour and that is the fulfillment of the law, drawing on Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now, both of these conclusions actually re-emerge in very intimately connected ways in chapter 6. The second of them, this idea of the law being fulfilled in love, is perhaps a central issue in Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and reoccurs particularly in Galatians 6, 2, with this phrase that Paul introduces, the law of Christ. Then significantly in chapter 6, verse 8, Paul connects the act of being justified now with future salvation. So what we unpack now will be how these ideas connect. This idea of the law being fulfilled in love and what that means for future salvation. So where we pick things up in Galatians 6.1, we ought to remind ourselves that there are fundamentally two factions at issue in the letter. One group that's loyal to Paul's rendition of the gospel of Christ and another group that's been persuaded by Paul's rivals um, that they've offered a more accurate picture of the gospel message, one which requires Gentiles to adopt Jewish cultic and ritual practice, including Sabbath law, kosher law, and of course, circumcision. So with these ideas in mind, let's proceed to read the text and then unpack the ideas. We're gonna read Galatians 6, one through 10. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. 
But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now it makes sense to me that the brothers Paul addresses in Galatians 6.1 are those who are loyal to his gospel. There's an appropriateness, I think, about labelling those seduced by Paul's opponents as those overtaken in some deviation or uh, taken over by some trespass. Or I think the uh, version I said uh, I read earlier said caught in any trespass. I think the, the verb probably is best translated as taken over. It's the Greek verb prolambano. Well, those who are overtaken by the by a trespass or overtaken in some deviation, I think is that faction who have been enticed by Paul's rivals. It's therefore incumbent upon those who were spiritual, as the passage says, to restore these wayward brothers in a spirit of gentleness. Now, there are two reasons why I think you who are spiritual or you the spiritual ones in Galatians 6.1 should be understood as those who have been made alive by the Spirit and now live according to the Spirit. In other words, those who have been truly justified by faith in Christ. Firstly, I point to the proximity with Galatians 5.25. You remember from the last podcast that Paul writes there that if we live because of the Spirit, we ought to keep in step with the Spirit. So there's mention in chapter 6, verse 1 of you, the spiritual ones, is likely to be connected. It seems to refer to those who now live uh, according to spirit and keep in step with the spirit. The second reason is Paul's use of the phrase a spirit of gentleness in Galatians 6.1, which almost seems to parallel the phrase you who, you who are spiritual or you the spiritual ones. Now you may also recall from the previous podcast that gentleness is one of the fruit of the spirit, all of which or on ought to be on display in those who are filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. So you, the spiritual one, is you who are keeping in step with the Spirit because you've been made alive by the Spirit. And then comes a passage in Galatians 6 verse 2, which seems to parallel Galatians 5.14. The proposition that love fulfills the law. So in the very act of restoring their wayward brethren who've been overtaken by some transgression, the spiritual ones are bearing the burdens of their brothers, as outlined at the beginning of verse 2. The result of this uh, burden bearing is literally to fill up completely the law of Christ. Now, the verb that Paul uses in Galatians 6 2 for fill up completely is actually grammatically related to the word for fulfill in Galatians 5.14. The verb in, verse, in Galatians 5.14 is the standard verb that's used to talk about the fulfillment of Scripture. However, this connection is clearly not intended to be accidental. Again, a few things are important to bear in mind. Firstly, it seems rather strange that in a letter where Paul's overall objective is both to articulate and explain the limitations of the law, that he would include a phrase like the law of Christ at all. It does seem a little strange, but actually it's a masterstroke. Now remember, it's you, the spiritual ones, who will completely fill up the law of Christ by bearing the burdens of their brothers. And what we have here is another instance of the new covenant eschatology of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I understand the law of Christ to mean the law in the hearts of the people 
under the direction and the auspices of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit came, the law becomes a part of us, and not just the law, but all of God's commands and statutes. One scholar once wrote that in the New Covenant age, God would take no more chances with Israel getting things right. He would put his spirit in their hearts and they would become newly and specially predisposed to obey and observe all of his commands. So here's why, um, here's the evidence that the new covenant promises are taking shape. People are showing that the law has been fulfilled in their hearts by bearing the burdens of their brothers and sisters who are caught in some transgression. Secondly, Paul wants his readers to understand the connection between bearing the burden of the wayward members of the family in Galatians 6.2 and being enslaved to one another in the context of love in Galatians 5.14. The apostle connects both those actions with the fulfillment of the law. So to bear the burdens of your wayward brothers and to serve one another in love, or as I've translated it, be enslaved to one another in the context of love, is to fulfill the law. This is what the entire law has been pointing to. It's been pointing to loving your neighbor as yourself. But the third thing is that the, the, the very fact that Paul refers to this law in Galatians 6.2 as the law of Christ suggests two things. Firstly, that the sacrifice of Jesus is the ultimate example of loving one's neighbor. And simultaneously, it's the quintessential example of bearing the burdens of another. Christ on the cross was bearing the burdens of the entire world. He was the very expression of the law of Christ. He was the very embodiment of the law of Christ. And of course, he is the one to whom the law points to. And so that great expression of love brings the law to its perfect fulfillment. Now, the immediate reading of verse 5 almost looks like it's contradicting verse 2. In verse 2, he commands the Gentiles to bear one another's burdens. But then in verse 5, he says each one will bear his own load. Well, here's what I think is going on. Paul's actually made two very important and deliberate changes. He's used two very different Greek nouns for burdens and load to make clear that he's talking about two different ideas. However, the verb is the same. The verb to bear is the same in, in both verses, except that it's a present tense in verse 2 and a future tense in verse 5. Each one will bear his own load. The, the load that he's talking about in verse 5 is final salvation. This is the one load which you will bear ultimately in the future, but it's also the one load that no one can bear on your behalf, hence verses three and four. Now that these verses refer to individual responsibility for salvation is emphasized by all the personal pronouns that you can see in verses, um, uh, from verse three right through to verse five. In verse three, he deceives himself. In verse four, each one must examine his own work and so have reason to boast in himself alone. Then in verse five, each one will bear his own load. And so Paul says, if these lessons have been taught by another, then that individual should be grateful as expressed in verse six. Verse seven includes his famous maxim, which has so many parallels in other religious and secular literature, and is practically a colloquial proverb in English as well. 
However, Paul's not merely using it colloquially. The language of sowing and reaping is actually resurrection language. In ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, the god Baal was the overseer of the harvest cycle. And um, many ancient Near Eastern cultures, um, Mesopotamians and others, um, said that when the land was barren, it was because Baal had died. And then when the rain came and crops were brought forth, it was because Baal had been resurrected. And that cycle, the harvest cycle, was effectively a, a death and rebirth cycle of the gods. Paul qualifies his statement that a man will reap what he sows with this explicit resurrection image in verse 8. If someone sows to the spirit, they'll reap eternal life. But if they sow to the flesh, and to sow to the flesh, I think, is the equivalent of planting seeds in the soil of the human soul, which is susceptible to sin and corruption, that will lead to eternal corruption in the age to come. The metaphor is actually repeated in verse 9. We'll reap the right harvest in the good time if we don't grow weary of doing what is right. This, not least of all, includes, I think, bearing the burdens of the sinful, but also includes looking for opportunities to do good to God's people, as Paul concludes in verse 10. So once more then, we see how Paul demonstrates the fulfilment of the new covenant blessings among the Galatian Gentiles. There is furthermore a strong note of encouragement, I think, to the modern church. We have a responsibility to one another when we see people drifting and hurting and being involved in things they really shouldn't be. I'm reminded of the charge that was given to the prophet Ezekiel to sound the trumpet when you see trouble coming. Yet just as Ezekiel stresses, the soul that sins is the one that will die. The trumpeter must sound the warning, but the people have a responsibility to listen and respond. And just as Paul stresses himself here, there is one load which each person must bear sole responsibility for. And that is how one stands before God, both now and as a result in the age to come. We must examine our own work of faith and be careful what seeds we sow. The Lord himself told us a tree will always be known by the fruit which it bears. And in this, make no mistake, God cannot be mocked.